We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins, in partnership with The Naked Scientist. Just me, Richard Hollingham, this time, for which I can only apologise, although we will hear from Sue a little later on. And we're recording in the podcast studio at Imperial College London for reasons which will become clear very shortly. We'll be discussing Soviet space dogs visit Liverpool to discover what the Beatles have done for space science. And where were you when this happened? Sixth of August, 2012, when Curiosity landed in the Gale Crater on Mars. Now, my guest knows exactly where he was that day because he's one of the lead scientists on the rover team. Professor Sanjeev Gupta, welcome back to the Space Boffins podcast. Now, Curiosity has been on Mars for more than 2,000 Martian days or souls. Where were you when it landed? Oh, I was in Pasadena at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in a giant room filled with 400 very, very, very nervous scientists. And when that announcement went out, the room just erupted. It was an incredible feeling. So one of those cheers could be you. Um, yeah, I think I was new to the team, so I was just watching. Um, Were you being very British about it? I was being very British about it. Well, you know, I'd just joined the team. I hadn't had the 10 years of instrument preparation and everything else that went with it. And I think for all those people who'd really been deeply embedded on the science team, had built these instruments, to, to see that happen and to see that success was extraordinary. So, yeah, just an amazing feeling. And 2,000 souls now, I mean, since August 2012. I mean, that's an, that's a long time. Yeah, that's 2,000 souls, but we've had another anniversary, which is three Martian years on the surface of Mars. And that's quite extraordinary for such a, a big uh, beast as Curiosity is. Now, you're co-investigator for the, the Mast Cam camera. I'm, I'm guessing from the name, that's the camera on the Mast. Yeah, actually, Curiosity has 17 cameras. It really likes its cameras. The Mars Cam team, the MMM team, is actually three cameras. It's the Mars Cam cameras. These are the stereo geology cameras that take these beautiful panoramas that we use for reconstructing the geology. But there's also the Mali instrument, which is the, the close range camera at the end of the arm. This is the hand lens camera. Um, which takes really close-up images of the rocks that we really need to understand the texture. But you will be familiar with it all because that's the camera that takes those amazing selfies of the rover. And there's also another instrument called the Mardi camera. And this was actually positioned at the bottom of the rover and was used to actually image the descent in a series of images. So some of you may have seen this amazing video of Curiosity actually landing on the surface of Mars, and that was taken with the Mardi camera. And we still use it for basically imaging the rocks below the the rover. Uh, and you are the geologist on this. So you are looking at the, the landscape, the rocks. And what's extraordinary about this and the images that have come back, it is a landscape that appears to be, or can we say for certain, shaped by water? Well, it, it, I'm one of the geologists, I should add. Well, quite and a, a geologist. A yeah. geologist. Um, 
I think we see quite a lot in the landscape. So firstly, I think the the present day landscape is not necessarily, it's not a landscape that's being currently shaped by water. It's a landscape that's being shaped by wind erosion processes largely. So most of the landscape forms that we can see at the present day are shaped by millions of years of wind erosion, basically. But the rocks themselves that we're investigating and some of the landforms that we can see show clear evidence for water activity. So that it's certainly clear that water played a major role in the early evolution of the sediments in Gale Crater. So I've seen pictures of, you see the, 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 these deltas almost, it looks like it's shown where you compare that to, to on Earth, it's very, very similar. That's right. I mean, that's the model we use. So, you know, the reason uh, I'm on the team and other, there's a lot of other terrestrial geologists on the team, uh, by terrestrial, I mean the people who study uh, rocks on Earth, is that basically we're using our experience of reconstructing ancient environments on Earth and playing that back on Mars. You know, what I can do is I can say, go down to the Dorset coast, look at a series of sedimentary rocks on that uh, Jurassic coast, and I can tell you a story, a narrative of what that landscape not only looked like, I can paint you a picture of that, but also tell you how that evolved, how that landscape evolved through environmental change, uh, be it climatic change or just changes in processes. And what's remarkable is that we can now do that on Mars because actually the same physical process is applied. I mean, sedimentary particles are moved by physical processes, physics, and the same physics applies to Mars. So was Mars once a, a, a wet planet like the, like the Earth, a watery planet like the Earth? So, yeah, you know, that's a heated debate in Mars science. All the evidence that we have from Gale Crater tells us that the time period encapsulated by the sediments in Gale Crater was a wet period. Now, this might have been a relatively short time period, maybe several million years, a few million years, not necessarily billions of years, but clearly there was evidence for rivers flowing, formation of deltas and long lasting lakes present in Gale Crater. So, and, and you know, this is really the first in situ evidence. So that means that it's not evidence from orbital images, but it's actually on the ground evidence that to me is really uh, the final set of evidence that you need to be be certain about this. Do you know where the water went? I mean, was it simply torn away by the bombardment from particles from the sun? Because there's no magnetic field, is there? There's no protective magnetic bubble on Mars. Yeah. So I think, you know, you had short-lived periods of, certainly for um, Gale Crater, you had short-lived periods of water and by short-lived, I'm still talking millions of years. Yeah, but in, in your geological terms, that's in my really geological short, time, yeah. so we're not talking days or years. But we don't really know why these were wet periods. It could have been due to climatic changes, so variations in orbital parameters of Mars, etc. So obliquity, what are called obliquity changes, etc. You know, the water may have come and gone because of climate change. The other idea is that. You've got volatiles from volcanoes that create local atmospheres on Mars that provide warm, wet conditions for short periods. So, you know, the jury's still out on the mechanisms. I think we're at the stage where we need to build the evidence before we can speculate about the mechanisms. Now, you're also involved in the European Space Agency ExoMars mission. Now, the rover will be launched 
well, hopefully, in a couple of years. But right now, after 18 months of orbital manoeuvres, the trace gas orbiter TGO is almost ready to begin its science mission. It'll be measuring gases in the Martian atmosphere, particularly methane, a potential sign of active volcanoes or even life on the red planet. Well, I've just come back from mission control at Darmstadt in Germany, and with the controllers working behind us, I spoke to Michel Denis, XMR's Flight Operations Director. We are doing the commissioning at Mars of various instruments such that uh, these instruments are switched on, first pictures are being taken for the camera, first spectra are being made and observations for the spectrometers that look at the atmosphere. Then we want the instrument to give the best out of themselves and uh, be very accurate and precisely calibrated. What sort of state is the, the spacecraft in? Because it's been there since, what, October 2016 you've spent almost a year getting it into the into the right orbit checking it all out is it working the spacecraft is in, is in perfect shape the overbraking phase has been very long but uh, as uh, expected it took uh, uh, more or less exactly one year to uh, reduce the speed of uh, TGO by uh, about one kilometer per second when it is at the closest point from the planet speed reduced means less energy means a shorter and shorter orbit and this is how we brought it from a 24 hour orbit to a two hour orbit and two hour orbit means that 12 times per day the spacecraft will circle Mars and will be able to make the wealth of observations and pictures. So we are doing the final adjustments and the checks in situ of the various instruments to be able to start in a few weeks the routine mission at full speed that will produce enormously an enormous amount of data, pictures and so on for the scientists to study uh, Mars, its surface, its atmosphere, etc. The other cool thing about this satellite is it's almost acting like a communication satellite, this this spacecraft. It'll it'll be relaying signals from various rovers, landers on the surface. Yes, the TGO is a communication satellite. It embeds communications payload in a UHF. It's provided by NASA and is similar to the communication packages on board the other orbiters of NASA or also on the other ESA orbiter Mars Express. This allows to uh, communicate with uh, current rovers on the surface of Mars, uh, NASA Opportunity and NASA Curiosity, but also will allow to communicate with future rovers and landers of NASA inside Mars 2020, and of course with the ExoMars assets that will be the rover ExoMars, which is European, and the Russian uh, ExoMars platform that will both land on uh, in March 2021 on the surface of Mars for a uh, mission essentially in year 2021. And the main point of this mission, so it, it's it's doing this sniffing of the the atmosphere. It's acting as a as a relay, but. When it's sniffing, it's specifically looking for, for methane. It's almost, you know, the would be the most exciting thing to find and be able to identify where it comes from. TGO is actually looking for all gases in small quantity in the atmosphere of Mars that is made mostly of carbon dioxide, CO2, but also other gases in very small quantities which are all important to understand the functioning of the atmosphere. Methane is the most exciting one because on Earth, methane is known to come from two sources, uh, essentially volcanism and by living organisms. On uh, Mars, as far as we know, volcanism existed 
but uh, is uh, uh, no longer active since millions of years. And life, we don't know. So if uh, methane is found and uh, confirmed, if it's found in uh, certain places, in certain seasons, maybe with some uh, repetition cycle, one could think of a possible biological source. And in any case, uh, one would think of where to land next to uh, look for possibly life in microbian shape, uh, hidden under the surface, maybe not very deep, that could uh, have developed there or survived with uh, some uh, energy from maybe hydrothermal causes or, uh, and some liquid water protected by the crust of Mars. Michel Denis, Flight Operations Director for Europe's ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. Sanjeev, there's already some evidence for methane from Mars Express, which is ESA's other orbiter around Mars. I mean, that's quite cool, actually. ESA has two two orbiters around Mars Mars right now, yeah. Is this something that get excited about? Yeah, it is pretty exciting. And I should also add that Curiosity has also with its uh, sample analysis at Mars instrument, which is also investigating the chemistry of the atmosphere, also been able to detect uh, minute quantities of methane that seem to come and go. And that's the mystery, you know, why is it, you know, we would expect if there was methane, it would last a long time or disappear quickly, but it seems to seasonally come and go. And what's causing it? Why is it there? And I think what TGO is going to do really nicely is to be able to map at a much higher fidelity in the upper atmosphere of Mars, the presence of methane, if it's there, spatially, and be able to try and pinpoint, if it is there, where it's coming from. And that's hugely exciting. Now, you are also on the team for the ExoMars rover. And in fact, you're on the team for the next NASA rover as well. And let's yeah, talk just about... don't tell my family. OK, okay. <laughs> I'm just, just they won't would never it. listen to this. No, no. <laughs> okay. um, it, with the ExoMars rover in particular, that is very much focused on this, this looking, for, looking for life. That's right. So it has a clear astrobiological focus, uh, lots of cool instruments on the rover. I'm part of the uh, PANCAM team. The PANCAM is a UK-led instrument. That's, again, it's the eyes of the rover. That's going to be taking beautiful panoramic images of the landscape where ExoMars lands and actually looking at the detailed geology to help us determine where we should drive to, what are the best chances for looking for ancient life. So this is actually going to be looking at ancient life in the rocks. The key difference between ExoMars and Curiosity, so Curiosity has a drill, did the first drilling on Mars, but it only drilled a few centimetres into the Martian surface, so up to six or seven centimetres. And the problem with that is that's still within the radiation damage zone. So Mars is obviously being bombarded by radiation, which would degrade any organic chemical signature in the rocks you know these rocks have been sitting on the martian surface for billions of years and the key difference with the exomars rover is it's going to be able to drill meters you know maybe two meters up into you know but deeply into the rocks on mars and so get beyond the radiation damage zone Well, Sanjeev, thanks very much for now still to come on space boffins the connection between space and the beetles And we celebrate the contribution to space exploration by dogs. 
You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef. Take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and uh, I'm recording today at Imperial College in London in the fashionable Kensington area of London, although there's not much fashionable about this room, I have to say. I'll put some pictures of uh, ESA's control room on our Facebook page and there's a particularly good picture of the cluster mission controller, which may surprise you. I've also been visiting, I've been doing a lot of control rooms. I've been visiting the UMETSAT uh, control room, which is also in Darmstadt, about a kilometre away from ESA. And uh, these are the people who operate all Europe's weather satellites. And what's particularly impressive there is you see these live pictures of the Earth from geostationary orbit. So the whole globe is gradually revealed as these satellites spin and scan and produce a next line. It's like an old-fashioned scan on a, on a television. And there's also a rather hypnotic video, which we'll put on uh, our usual social media channels, of a spinning spacecraft outside Umetsat. So uh, do check those out. Now, the European Week of Astronomy and Space Science has just taken place in Liverpool. Famous for its football, sense of humour, and, of course, the Beatles. But as Sue Nelson discovered, it's taken an Italian to make the unlikely connection between the city's most famous band and space science. The Arena Conference Centre in Liverpool overlooks the River Mersey and is currently packed with astronomers and space scientists from all over Europe. But Viviana Ambrosi is here with something slightly different because she's opening people's eyes to the Fab Four's impact on space science. Some asteroids are named after them. We have uh, Lennon, McCartney, Edison, Star and Beatles. There is a creature uh, of Mercury who is called Lennon. NASA beamed across the universe into the deep space. Uh, their song are used as orbital wake-up call. So the connection is stronger. How did you discover that there were so many connections between the Beatles and space? Was it something that you just sort of gradually pieced together? I was studying science communication and I grew up with a father who was really totally in love and devoted with the Beatles. So just uh, a teacher asked me as homework to imagine a book of science and I made the connection. I started to try research and I found a lot of material. I believe it's all about love. When you are in love with someone, you want to speak about it. So it's quite natural that there are a lot of scientists who love the Beatles, who try to link them their work to Beatles. So. I noticed on your poster that there was a lovely photo of some astronauts recreating the famous walking across the pedestrian crossing, which is on the Abbey Road um, yes. LP. And, and to be honest, it had passed me by. Um, this was a mission from 
2010. Yes, the expedition 26, because even NASA knows that an image is worth more than 1,000 words. So NASA sometimes makes fan posters featuring the crew of the expedition, and for this expedition, select the Beatles team. And Catherine Coleman, the astronaut, even posed barefoot for the poster. So they, they absolutely, totally uh, recreated it. And I was surprised to hear that a Beatles song didn't quite make it onto the Voyager disc. Oh, yes. The record company of the Beatles didn't own the right for the song, but they were destined as well to become the ambassador of the pop music in space because NASA beamed across the universe into the deep space to celebrate its anniversary and the anniversary of the song. So which song was that? Across the universe. Across the universe. You see, I've not even heard. I'm actually from this area, and I've not heard <laughs> because most of nobody, songs. nobody noticed this. But uh, there is a new mission, Lucy, that will be launched. For example, it's called Lucy from the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamond. And if you look at the mission patch logo, you can see the diamond shape, and inside the logo there is the Lucy, or meaning fossil name after the same song. Which for you is your sort of favourite connection with, with, with the Beatles and space science? It's curious that uh, when discovered uh, a white dwarf, they call it Lucy, <laughs> like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. About science in general, there are a lot. I really enjoy the fact that if you want, today you can speak uh, with the personality of Joe Lennon. A group of computer scientists try to recreate the personality of John Lennon and put in an artificial intelligence in a software so you can connect in the internet and chat with John. It was recreated in a chatbot. It's called Imagine and It's True, <laughs> the Artificial John Lennon Research Project. Well, this has certainly opened my eyes to the, to the Beatles in a whole new way. Yes, uh, and uh, if you want to know something about uh, England, uh, a group of research of the University of Leeds has done the first uh, human database of memory, the Magical Memory 2. <laughs> it was trying to study how it works, the brain and the memories of the people, so they used the Beatles. Viviana Ambrosi. The NASA Lucy mission, referred to in that piece, by the way, will be the first mission to study Jupiter's Trojan asteroids. It'll launch in 2021 on a 12-year journey to seven different asteroids. Also, another little bit of Beatles information for you. Their record company, EMI, used the money from the sale of the White Album to fund scientific research, some of which led to research into X-rays and the invention of the CT scanner. Now, I've just been writing a book on Soviet space dogs, as you do. These are the dogs flown by the Soviet Union to test their new spacecraft in the 1950s and early 60s. Now, the book will be published later this year. Really, it's a collection of pictures of space dog memorabilia because these pioneering dogs were heroes across Russia and the wider Soviet empire. Famous ones, of course, Laika, the first dog in space, and Belka and Strelka, the first dogs to orbit the Earth, and return safely. But there were dozens of others, and plenty didn't make it back alive. 
Well, children's author Vic Southgate has also written about the dogs. Her book, out now, is called Dogs in Space, the amazing true story of Belka and Strelka. So I sat down with Vix for a chat about space dogs and asked her first why dogs and not chimps or monkeys. They went for dogs because they're easier to train. So they did understand the monkeys and how similar they are to humans, but they also had personalities. They also had traits that humans have, which made them far harder to actually look at in space. You know, they, they couldn't do all of the research that they needed to do on the chimps in space. So... And what they needed was they needed something that was trainable, and dogs were perfect for that. How do you recruit, then, a space dog? They went out and they found them on the streets. So in Moscow in 1951, there were lots of strays on the streets, and they had people who just went out there. They would take a tape measure out with them to make sure they were the right size for the capsules. They would try to go for uh, female dogs. They came back with some male dogs, The very first dogs that went up for the Russians were, some of those were male. But the female dogs, because it's easier to put them in a space suit, it's easier for them to do their business in a space suit. Because they don't have to cock a leg. Exactly, exactly. So the practicalities of it meant that the female dogs were the best and small dogs as well, so that they could fit in, so the payload was was lower. They seem to have been quite well looked after and, and, and cared for. Yeah, well, some of the dogs that actually came into the programme were donated by their owners, so maybe the facts of how they were donated or why they were donated are not clear. But from my own experience of people who have to donate their dogs, it's because they can't look after them or they're too poorly, you know, and and they want them to go and do something and be looked after. So because they're dealing with the stray dogs, they have to keep them healthy. They've got to keep them happy. So, of course, they're going to treat them well because you don't want an unhappy dog to go up in space. As a result, there must have been a bond developed between the the trainers and the dogs. Yes, there was, because the trainers had to do lots of experiments. They had to pass a lot of tests. And so they would have to make this bond with the dogs so that they could assess whether or not they were happy, whether or not they were content with what they were doing. Their stress levels were very important because if you had a dog that was too stressed, if it then went up into space, the research data that came back would be on a stressed level. And so that would be absolutely useless as well. So they had to keep them really nice and calm, make sure that they were happy, make sure that they were well looked after. But also, if they weren't able to do that, a lot of the dogs that that didn't pass the test actually went back with some of the trainers, the scientists and became family pets. And the sort of training that these these dogs went through, uh, what we would expect an astronaut today almost to to go through, to simulate launch, to to get the the sense of what it's like in a rocket. So then they put in the rocket, it's almost exactly the same. They went through the centrifuge test. They they did lots of soundboards. So they they had to be put into noisy atmospheres to make sure that they weren't too stressed out by the noise of a rocket taking off. I've heard stories that astronauts these days don't really know that the rocket is taking off but I'm sure when you're in a tiny capsule on top of what was then a ballistic missile that would have been extremely noisy and that would have been quite stressful for an animal that doesn't quite know what's going on around it. And these were missiles essentially to start with at least before we get to to Laika they were going up and they were coming back down so what what was a space dog's flight like What, what did they go through? They would be sat on the launch pad for quite a few hours prior to the launch there are stories out there that sort of like say that 
you mentioned Laika, that she was actually on the launch pad for a lot longer than that. And some of the scientists and, and the trainers did actually sneak some food into her because otherwise that would have been cruel not to do that. But they are used to being on their own. They're used to being in a, in a confined space. So they would then be monitored. Their medical data was being monitored. They knew what the dogs were going through at that stage. They monitored the whole flight. They know exactly what the heart rate was doing, what the breathing was doing. And so even on the longer flights, they, they actually were able to feed the dogs as well. Now, these initial flights, they were ballistic flights. They went up, they came back down, they parachuted back to Earth. Mostly the dogs made it and came out intact. With Laika, of course, they knew that once she went up, she wasn't coming back. Yes, unfortunately, that was a suicide mission for, for Laika. It's not what they wanted to put out there in the press to start with. It's something that has become clear um, in recent years. But yes, Laika's mission was never supposed to bring her back alive, unfortunately. And there's, uh, again, a lot of lies around that mission in terms of, well, propaganda, let's let's put it that way, that she had a perfectly pleasant flight and then died naturally. It's almost certain now she died quite uncomfortably after overheating. Yeah, I think she only lasted for seven hours and I don't think the flight was overly pleasant for her. But she went up in the same capsule as the Sputnik 1 went up. So, you know, you send a a satellite up and then you send a living creature up in that same atmosphere. It's not going to be pleasant. But it was through that flight that they actually modified everything, made proper capsules, proper spaces for the dogs to actually survive in. So Laika's flight, although it was tragic, was very, very important. Most of your book, so Dogs in Space, the amazing true story of Belka and Strelka. Now, Belka and Strelka, these are really heroes of the Soviet Union, their flight in in 1960. Now, this was a a precursor to Yuri Gagarin's flight, and and quite extraordinary what what they did. Yes, so between 1957, when Laika went up, and 1960, there were quite a few dog flights And some of them, there were single dog flights and then they became pairs. And the reason for sending two dogs up at once in the initial stages was to find out what type of landing was the most safe. So one dog would be parachuted out of the capsule whilst the other one landed inside the capsule. And so there'd been successes, there'd been failures, there'd been lots of lessons learned between three years of these two dogs' flights. But the August 1960 was a special flight where they they both went up, they orbited, they had a fantastic flight and they came back down and they both landed in the capsule because that was how they they said that it was the safest way to land for these particular flights. And when they were recovered from the capsule, they seemed pretty happy. They seemed to be absolutely fine. There was no adverse effects. One of the dogs, Strelka, even went on to have puppies later in life and one of those puppies went over to President Kennedy. So it showed that spaceflight was not harmful and it it really paved the way for Yuri Gagarin's flight a few months later. Uh, And what is extraordinary about that flight, they became heroes. I mean, it it wasn't the done thing in the Soviet Union to have these these icons or have celebrities, but they, they were celebrities. They were, yeah, they were definitely celebrities. I mean, if you can imagine two dogs at a press conference, you know, they can't speak, they can't tell you what it's like, but everybody wanted to see them. Everybody wanted to know 
what who these dogs were they wanted to pet them they went round schools the kids loved them you know for um educational outreach these two dogs were fantastic Vic Southgate, author of the children's book Dogs in Space. And as I say, my book will be out later this year, which is it's really a picture book. I write some words, but it's really a picture book. Sanjeev Gupta is still with me here at Imperial College London. I mean, you you guys, listen, you were fascinated by that. You didn't know anything about this. That's right. I knew about Laika, obviously, but yeah. not the other stories. It's just amazing, actually. Quite extraordinary. It, it is extraordinary. And I think it's it's like a lot of the, the Soviet space history. It's been largely hidden from us and you get a sort of you look back at the books there are official versions in the in the 60s and and 70s and then it's only really been coming out since the the end of the Soviet Union that's right and I'm I'm intrigued to read these books actually (laughs) they're very good they're very yeah it'll be interesting to find out more about this now let's go back to to Mars, Curiosity rover still there. It's got a uh, nuclear power pack on it. So how much life does that give it? I mean, can it keep going on? Yeah, it'll keep going on. And I think what's more likely is the instruments will progressively wear and tear, basically. We'll take it out. You know, obviously, um, we have issues with some of our wheels. They've got holes in them. I think they're lasting and they're going well at the moment. Yeah, I was going to mention I was going to mention that because the, the new rover has that's the fundamental change, really, is the design of the wheels because they're being torn apart at the moment. Well, they're not being torn apart, but we've had what, what's happened is that the rocks that we've been driving over have been particularly hard, and it wasn't anticipated they would be as hard as we found them. So we've been actually been we had to change our drive path and to drive on softer rocks, which actually turned out to be good because we actually discovered lots of interesting geology as a result of this. But there are issues. They've done lots of modelling, and we do lots of wheel imaging. Uh, using the the Mali camera to look at the wheels in detail to monitor degradation of the wheels and everything looks okay at the moment. There hasn't been much more pronounced degradation, and so we're looking good. And we keep an eye on hard terrain, and you know we'll scout, skirt around any really sharp rocks, etc. And is it still heading up this this mountain, this this hill, really, Mount Sharp? Well, I would call it a mountain. It's okay, it's a mountain. Okay. It's five kilometres high. Yeah, oh, yeah that's a mountain. Yeah, that's okay. Mountain. Fair, and fair we're, enough, yeah. we're just on the lower slope. We're never going to climb the entire mountain, but um, we're on the lower slopes where we've got some really exciting geology. So at the moment, we are on this very prominent ridge called uh, the Vera Rubin Ridge, named after the very famous American astronomer. And what's interesting here is that the rocks that make up the Vera Rubin Ridge are very rich in this iron oxide hematite and we're trying to understand what what caused this why are they so rich in iron oxide so the sediments we're sat on and we're looking at are again ancient lake sediments and we've now driven through almost 200 meters of beautifully laminated fine-grained mudstones that we interpret to have been deposited in an ancient lake and so what we don't know is whether these hematite deposits these hematite rich rocks whether that's due to the chemistry of the lake water or whether it's due to later fluid flow that was rich in iron that then basically got deposited within the pores of the sediment. And it's very exciting. Mars has actually become a really complicated place and trying to tease this out is actually very hard. Do you not just want to go there? I mean, they always said that Harrison Smith, the uh, Apollo 17 geologist, the only scientist who went to the moon, 
got so much more because he was a geologist. He was trained as a geologist. You don't want to just get out there with your hammer and say, right, that's what's going on. We can figure all this out. Or can you tell a lot with these with these rovers? Are they almost like having your own eyes there? I think we can do an enormous amount with the rover, but obviously we're still limited, partly because obviously we don't operate in real time. And so there's a delay. And obviously the rover can't go everywhere that a geologist could go. So, you know, there's plenty of places where I think, oh, if only we could climb that little cliff there. If I could just skirt around this corner, but there's boulders in the way, I could just step over those boulders. And obviously the the rover can't do that. So I think an astronaut geologist would be much more nimble, even in a space suit in this harsh environment on Mars, would be more nimble than a rover. And could explore the terrain and would be able to make real-time decisions, be able to map the terrain and choose the best samples to collect. So I think we will see astronaut geologists go to Mars eventually, but it's not going to happen for many years. And in the meantime, we're going to send robots. And I think also, I think we have to remember that we've actually explored only a very few places on Mars in situ, on the ground with rovers. So I think what we need to do is to work out the spectrum of places that are good places to go to on Mars before we make this huge decision as to where to send an astronaut. Sanjay Gupta from uh, NASA's Curiosity rover team and also professor here at Imperial College London. Thanks very much for, for joining me here at Imperial. Uh, pictures and videos, including the ones we promised from the last podcast, uh, we'll put on our social media pages. Uh, incidentally, it'd be great if you could rate us on iTunes or whatever platform you get this podcast, and ideally by saying nice things. That would be great. I'm Richard Hollingham. Space Boffins is a Boffin media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists, and we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance insurance consortium and as it's april we couldn't let the podcast go by without a reference to this man thanks for listening you have heard a few bars of one of gagarin's favorite songs and now listen to gagarin as he is about to enter the spaceship vostok Dear friends, fellow countrymen and peoples of the world, in a few minutes I shall be launched into outer space in a powerful cosmic ship. It is hard to describe my emotions, but I feel that this is the moment for which I have lived all my life. I see the earth. Visibility, good. I hear you perfectly. And sometime later, the flight is continuing well. I see the earth. Visibility, good. One can see everything. <laughs>